Father, thank you so much for the, um, the new day and uh, for all the things you've prepared for us to do today. Thank you for Peter coming here and this material that he's uh, prepared. And thank you for his uh, knowledge and expertise in this area. We pray that you would help us to really benefit well from it. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, it's lovely to be back with you again. Uh, having been with you in the uh, wonderful climate of Salisbury last time. And indeed, we'll see Salisbury will make an appearance today. And we'll get that in. Um, the session is called, uh, in a rather long-winded uh, subtitle here, A Pre-Modern Meditation on the Modernist Roots of Postmodernism. Woo! So, I'm going to cover the sort of the broad sweep of uh, intellectual history, if you like, from... Um, the Christian pre-modern worldview that was held up until uh, sort of uh, late medieval Renaissance, beginning of Enlightenment uh, period, uh, into what's called modernism, uh, and then uh, postmodernism, which sort of runs alongside that as well. Indeed, all three uh, continue to uh, run alongside each other. You've got handouts here. Um, the first two quotes are just introductory. I'm not going to say anything about them. They're just uh, background. But you'll see this uh, diagram of the uh, spirituality. Hello. That's all right. Uh, come around uh, here, I guess. <laughs> Got a hand out there. It must be Beth. Uh, which last time, if you remember, when we were looking at uh, spirituality in film and so on, uh, we talked about this gene generic definition of spirituality, and I'm going to start there as well. So we'll, we'll build off some of the stuff that we did uh, last time. Uh, this uh, painting here, by the way, I just draw your attention to it, it's by a, a Japanese Christian <coughs> artist uh, called uh, Makoto Fujimura, and it's called uh, The White Tree. Think of the various uh, biblical images of trees at the beginning and end of the biblical uh, story. And uh, what I'm going to try and do is kind of mix uh, intellectual history with some sort of uh, art appreciation. We'll have various times where we'll have some art to look at, some music, some lyrics, some film clips and so on to sort of um, meditate upon and discuss. Uh, and I'll be mixing a bit of apologetics in there as well. But, but Apologetics is broader than simply the, the intellectual argumentative defence of Christianity. It's also about the, the communication of something of the, the goodness and the beauty of the Christian worldview, as well as the truth of the, the Christian worldview. And these uh, traditional three transcendent values of truth, goodness and beauty are, are interrelated anyway. Um, we want to say that it is true that it is good to love your neighbour you know it is true that putting on the character of Christ makes you a more beautiful person objectively speaking and so on um, so I'm going to be uh, mixing in a bit of art appreciation with the apologetics today so hopefully uh, there'll be something there for everyone even if you don't uh, like my particular taste in musical film clips or, or whatever uh, I apologise there will be a little bit of prog rock in here <laughs> uh, 
Augustine, who I um, quote there at the beginning of the worksheets, had this <laughs> image in his, his book, The City of God, massive monumental tome, and he analysed the world in terms of the city of God and the city of the world. Uh, the world in the sort of Pauline sense of the, the structures of um, human society that are opposed to the ways of the Lord. And people continue to inhabit uh, different cities or world views and different spiritualities alongside one another in the world today, of course. And well, world view, as we looked at last time, is um, uh, part of the structure of one's spirituality. And with this thing of the, the, the head, the heart, and the hands. And it's the combination of these things that form a spirituality. So um, the mental dwelling place of a spirituality, in terms of its beliefs about what's true and what's false of reality, uh, is its worldview. And um, the postmodern philosopher Richard Rorty, I think it was, uh, made an analogy between worldviews and mirrors. Uh, a mirror re- reflects our own image of reality back to us. Um, whether or not our worldview reflects reality to us or helps, helps us to see reality in our worldview uh, depends upon whether or not our worldview is, is true, more or less, as it were. Where um, I'm going to insist in a thoroughly non-postmodern fashion uh, being true is a matter of telling it like it is. Hey, this is not a difficult concept. Being true to the facts of the matter. Um, even the most um, thoroughly paid up uh, postmodernist who says there is no truth and everything's just true for me or true for you, but not true with a capital T, nonetheless seems to have a weird capacity to enjoy watching episodes of The Weakest Link. Now, if you've ever seen The Weakest Link, you know the entire drama of that game show depends upon the person watching it being able to tell the difference between who actually is the weakest link and has given the fewest correct, (laughs) true answers to the general knowledge questions, and whether people on the panel are going to vote to get rid of the person who genuinely is the weakest link, or the person that they just feel threatened by and they don't want them to get the money so they're going to stab them in the back. Now, anyone who can enjoy watching The Weakest Link appreciates the fact that truth is a matter of telling it as it is, whatever they actually tell you. Uh, so uh, I don't think it is possible to be a self-consistent through-going post-modernist. But we get that. What I'm really going to argue, if there's one sort of intellectual line through this, is that um, when... You appreciate the, the sort of Christian pre-modernist worldview and the shift into a modernist worldview that tries to get rid of God out of, the wor- out of your worldview, out of your spirituality, kick God out of your spirituality, but try and hold on to as much as the rest of the, the kind of Christian worldview as possible. But actually, it's not possible to do that. Once you kick God out... He's the foundation and everything else starts crumbling and the postmodernists have noticed that and are in a sense being consistent with that. But actually the more consistent you are with the fact that getting rid of God means you have no foundations for truth, goodness, beauty, etc., etc., the more self-contradictory you become. <laughs> so, you'll be reminded of the... Uh, 
definition of spirituality that we had, the head, heart, hand things that I've talked about, the fact that they become self-reinforcing loops in people's lives, um, that this kind of structure is recognised by scripture, because I think it's just the way God made people, you know, Jesus answering the question of the greatest commandment, it's loving God, putting him at the centre of your life, with all of your heart, and all of your mind, and all of your strength. Uh, or back to Deuteronomy, talking about assembling the people to learn to have reverent respect for fear of the Lord and to follow the words of the law. So you learn what's communicated in the law, you have the right attitudinal response to it, and so you do it. Now, let me build on that a little bit by saying that spirituality is... I think ideally spiritualities are uh, integrative things. I think people long for wholeness, for integrity, integration, a worldview where it is possible for your beliefs and your attitudes and your actions to match up and to flow organically together in the same direction. Um, and of course, as fallible human beings, we, we stuff up, we know that as Christians, we, we believe that certain things are wrong, and yet we do them anyway. Uh, and that is a painful thing, actually, to us, because it's disintegrative. And, and spiritualities can be more or less integrative or, or disintegrative, in terms of if you were consistently following them. So, spiritual development moves one in the direction of wholeness and integration in your spirituality. As you put on the character of Christ, as Paul talks about, you become someone who more and more believes what is true about reality and whose heart makes an appropriate response, a truly appropriate response to what is true about reality and who therefore more and more easily does what one should do and does not do what one should not do. <coughs> but you could have spiritual devolution, disintegration as well, spiritualities that pull you in different directions and are therefore uh, injurious to uh, the human person. And at a social level as well, as we'll see... So, to quote Augustine briefly, he famously said in his Confessions, My sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, in God, but in myself and his other creatures. And the search led me instead to pain, confusion, and error. As the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreef says, that's basically, to not put God at the centre of your worldview is to become an idol worshipper. And the trouble with idols is they can't give what they promise. You cannot get blood from a stone. You cannot get wholeness from an idol. It only comes from God because we are, as God's creatures, designed to work and to flourish in relationship with him. Love the Lord your God with everything you are. and Love yourself, love your neighbour as yourself. So, a culture, I would suggest 
is a shared spirituality together with its characteristic artistic traditional traditions. Like spiritualities, therefore, cultures can be more or less integrative or disintegrative. And I would argue that Christian culture is integrative. And I think the modernist rejection of God is fundamentally disintegrative. Because you're then, you're then trying to run your life the way God's not designed it to be run, really. And that the more consistent one tries to be with the rejection of God the deeper one will sink into the mire of, of postmodernism, which ultimately is nihilism. Ultimately, I don't think there's really a, a difference between deep postmodernism, we see there are various depths of postmodernism and, and nihilism. Okay, so that's kind of um, background, building a little bit on the stuff about spirituality we did last time. And before we launch into looking at the three sections, let me just open up for questions. I see that we have one already. Yeah, I was just saying, do you think it, it is inevitable that if you take, um, if you reject God and you take modernism, then it starts with a conclusion is always postmodernism? Or do you think that... Because some people would take it along like humanism or something like that. Like they'd, they'd find yeah. them more like a meaning somewhere else. Like there are alternative spiritualities without God. Sure. So the, the key part of the sentence at the bottom here is that the more consistently one tries to live out that rejection of God, the more one is pushed towards postmodernism. So, um, of course, it is possible for one to say, okay, I don't believe in God. But I do believe that human beings have intrinsic worth and value and we should um, support uh, humanist endeavours to uh, support human rights, etc., uh, etc., et mm. as, many, as many humanists do. But I think that is a case of a human being having values that are better than their worldview justifies. Um, of course, it is, it is possible to know and to do the right, the good, without belief in God. I mean, Paul talks about that in, in Romans, of, you know, the law is written on the heart, and those without the law do the law, and their consciences sometimes justify them in what they do. Um, but I would agree with the, 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 the moral argument, points out that actually, for a coherent understanding of, of how there could be such a thing as the right thing to do, to be known and to, and to be done, there has to be a God as the foundation of, of the loci of goodness, with a capital G, as it were. Uh, and if one recognised that, I, I think those people who, who, who would say, ah, I see that God is a necessary condition of their being, such a thing as intrinsic human, real, objective value and worth, I don't believe in God Therefore, it would be inconsistent of me to think that I have intrinsic value and worth. I must become a moral subjectivist. In being pushed towards nihilism, towards you know, they're being consistent with their rejection of God. Um, those who who say, "Hey, well, it's just obvious that it's wrong to torture children for fun." In a sense, they're being inconsistent with their lack of belief in God. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a sort of certain like, faith in evolution in that you're like as a human being my purpose in life is to propagate the human race 
So ruining children through torture, whatever, will not help propagate the human race. Yeah. So it's wrong. So I guess there's like. But then you see, purpose there yeah. has to be in inverted commas. Because it's not really purposeful, it just happens to be the case. There, there is no, no purpose if there is no purposer behind our existence. If our existence is just a matter of physical necessity, stroke chance, stroke the interaction of those two over time, we just are. You know, in our evolutionary past, you might be able to say um, people who didn't murder all their children tended to pass on their genes more. Mm. And, and so evolution has built into us a feeling against murdering children. But that, for a natu- within a naturalistic worldview, the, does that feeling true, truthfully reflect a moral fact? No. And once you've seen through that feeling by saying, well, you know, that's not reflecting a fact. There's no fact. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, 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 would, I would push that, no, you, uh, God is a necessary precondition of there being ob- objective moral facts and, and purposes and meaning and all sorts of things that, as you say, yeah, you know, humanists want to hold on to. Um, but if... if I would say if they are holding on to those things, it's because they're sort of their innate human nature constructed in the image of God is, is overruling consistency with the materialistic worldview. Mm. <laughs> there is a, I completely agree with you, um, but could you say there's the argument that, so on that, like, naturally, it is kind of survival of the fittest, and that's uh, ingrained within us. And then mm. things like values that come out of, like, basically love your neighbour as yourself in the way of, like, self-protection. So some, some modernists would say, like, you don't hurt other people because you know that that can then happen to you. And so then society builds up around itself more out of mm-hmm. yep. the self than actually for other people. So communists would probably go along those mm. lines. Um, so I mean, within that, like, again, the purpose... Is more just like humans are selfish and want to live and die. Yeah. And I mean, it's not much of a purpose, but there, there is like a, you can go to that level. But then that, that is to explain away our moral feelings. Mm. And, and so now seen through that, they, they don't reflect moral, real facts or meanings or, or inherent purposes in the world. Um, it is a matter of pragmatic. If, if I want a certain way of life or certain feelings or a cer- if I want a certain end, then I notice that certain means are better at achieving them than others. But that's a pragmatic ought, not a moral, not a categorical moral ought. Because the, the question, well, should I value that end? Is that end intrinsically valuable within a materialistic worldview? The answer is no. Is that Excellent point. Hold that thought. We will come back to that thought towards the end. Yes. So, once upon a time, so when we look into the pre-modern mirror and we ask the question who is the fairest of them all 
we get an answer something like this. God is the fairest of them all. He's the maximally beautiful being who created the whole cosmos. A Greek word that means ordered beauty. I think Cosmopolitan magazine. Um, <laughs> and who made humanity in his image only a little lower than the angels. And pre-modern Christian societies have sort of like taken a, a, an emblematic um, architectural symbol of such a society. You will probably recognise Salisbury Cathedral uh, here, which we saw together last time. David Levin notes that such Gothic cathedrals are some of the crowning achievements of Western architecture. And they're more like giant sculptures than just buildings. Every archway, every decoration has meaning and purpose. This architecture is expressing a worldview and a spirituality. What do people feel when they go into a cathedral? Or if you've ever looked at the sort of the comments in a visitor's book at a country parish church, what sort of comments do you get? What sort of feelings does being inside something like Salisbury Cathedral give you, give to people, whether they're religious or not, indeed? Or reverence, peace. No, I, I don't think that's just because there's some sort of paranormal seepage of hundreds of years of Christian prayer and worship sort of somehow into the structure of the stones that's then resonating out the, the minds of the, of the visitor. Why do people have those feelings and... Well, they were designed to give those feelings, like I guess. It's hard to say whether it's like associated or like inherent, which is quite yeah. common. But like, if you had someone had never seen a cathedral before mm. and had come from a non, like, a culture which had never had Christian influence, mm. then they came into a cathedral, it would be really interesting to know whether they got yeah. to see the feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if we're scanning into the, the Grand Mosque, mm. I, I don't know how to feel. Mm. Yeah. Pretty wild. <laughs> but even then, you know that you're sort of, like, you know that it's going to be a building. Yeah. You're expecting to feel something yeah. like this one. Yeah. 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 Certainly, you, you would be able to, by looking at the, the building, to put yourself somewhat into the frame of mind of the people that made it. Say, okay, this is not my tradition, but I see that the people who made this are, are saying something about how they see the world. And how they see the world, you know, that architecture tells me something about their spirituality. Uh, uh, whether or not it uh, you know, fully resonates with, with me, it certainly tells me something about their spirituality. Um, I mean, just look at the, the, the arches upon arches upon arches, the, the, the massive use of, of useless space 
I mean, all of the space in this building ab above about six foot tall. <laughs> what is that space? Look at the effort to put all that useless space. What's that about? You know? It's point, you know, there's something about the, the transcendent, the, the, the light, the, the architecture is saying something. Dr. Emmanuel uh, Paparella, if I pronounced that correctly, uh, says it was the monk's commitment to reading, writing, and education which ensured the survival of Western civilization after the fall of the Roman Empire. They laid the foundation for European universities. Universities were, of course, founded by Christians and became the bridge between antiquity and modernity. This is the, um, the cloister. The Indian Christian philosopher Vishal Mangawaldi says the scientific perspective flowered in Europe as an outworking of medieval biblical theology nurtured by the church. The Bible created and underpinned the scientific outlook. Uh, and actually, just to construct a building like this takes quite a lot of science, in a sense. The, the engineering uh, involved in you know, inventing the flying buttress and the shape of the arches and the stained glass windows and so on and so forth. There's another emblem of this at, at Salisbury Cathedral. Did you see it whilst you were there? The Salisbury Cathedral clock, dating from uh, around 1386, it said, to be the oldest working clock in the world. It's the cathedral that has it. Yeah. This is cutting-edge tech. Um, indeed, all of the, particularly in a, in a fairly illiterate culture, the, the presentation technology of the cathedral is cutting-edge presentation technology. You've got back-illuminated, full-colour displays, stained-glass windows. You've got... Um, probably quadraphonic sound as they split the choir up around in the different uh, choir stalls around, around the place um, etc now within uh, this charming medieval painting of Adam and Eve in the garden with God uh, <laughs> we're in a worldview where you think okay there's God and God created the world and God created humanity in his image. Um, it's kind of natural to have some sort of expectation that human beings created in the image of God, although they're, you know, we're smaller than God is, but we should be able to understand, at least to some extent, God, because, like, we're created in his image. So we should, we might not expect to comprehend God, but we expect to understand something about God, and indeed to understand, if not comprehend, something about the the workings of his world, because indeed the God who created the world out there, the way that stuff works in, in the physical universe, is also the God who made the way that we think in here. And you'd expect there to be a, a sort of an affinity between what's going on in here and what's going on out there, such that the two can come into, into contact with one another. 
So that lays a theological framework within which science is possible. And there are plenty of other ways of thinking about reality that would not give you such a justification. Um, that's why it's interesting to see you know, an Indian philosopher reflecting on, well, why did science begin in the West? It's not that you know, people in India are thicker than Westerners. It's, it's not about race or whatever. But there is a contribution from worldview involved. Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga notes that modern science arose within the bosom of Christian theism as a shining example of the powers of reason which God has created us with a spectacular dis- a display of the image of God in us human beings, he calls science. And so Christians are committed to taking science with the utmost seriousness. Now, this pre-modern culture we have here, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of John the Baptist, pointing up to heaven here. Pre-modern culture assumed and pointed to the existence of, as we've mentioned before, objective, transcendent values of truth and goodness uh, and beauty. And just to, to round off our sort of overview of, of pre-modern culture, give one of these uh, times of reflection, where I'll actually uh, play the music that goes along with these lyrics from the, the Christian Celtic band Iona. Uh, and their track an atmosphere of miracles from their recent album and we've got uh, another artwork by uh, the Japanese Christian artist Makoto Fujimura here this piece is called Grace Foretold it's very abstract but it's interesting to see um, people would associate maybe you know um, representative art with pre-modern culture it's like, well, you know, this Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, you know, that's pre-modern art. It's you know, a painting of some religious bloke. <laughs> like it's, it's saying, this religion thing, that's important. We spend money on painting that. But actually, this, this, I would say this is a pre-modern piece of art. The fact that it's an abstract, non-representative piece of art doesn't mean it's not a pre-modern piece of art or Christian piece of art. This is a deeply Christian piece of art. It's an interesting chap. Look him up on, online. Um, he uses uh, ancient traditional um, Japanese art methods uh, that involve a lot of uh, use of precious materials, um, sort of gemstones ground up in the paint, gold leaf, etc., etc. Um, you can see the, the shiny sort of gold leaf here, uh, the colours. Um, but um, we'll have a discussion about the art later. So, uh, when you say pre-modern, do you mean as in it's, it's like now? He's painting. Yes, he's painting now. So he is a he is a he is a, a contemporary artist. Yeah. So, uh, as, yeah, as I said, you know, the fact that people divide up um, these terms as, as to when the worldview originated but they they carry on parallel to one another yeah yeah good 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 clarification um so let me just play this piece of music and let you look at this art and read these words and and listen to this music 
and we'll have a little discussion uh, afterwards about, again, what it feels like to inhabit the Christian worldview um, before we then you know, have a nice point of contrast as we <laughs> go on through the other stuff. More about something that struck me whilst we were cogitating to point out is this um, Leonardo da Vinci painting of, of St John the Baptist, okay, very traditional representational art, but the main thing that's being communicated in this painting is not represented in it. What's going on here is St John is pointing up at something that's not seen. What is he pointing to? And the light in the painting is very strongly coming down. So here is, you know, you know, here's the label, St. John, looking up, light coming down. So is that representational or is that abstract? <laughs> you know, <laughs> actually, it's talking about revelation, isn't it? It's talking about something that is not literally represented in the painting. Uh, any more than in the Graceful Told painting. This is not a representational piece of art, but it, it represents the artist's spirituality. The fact that it has the label Graceful Told. What do you, you feel about this work of art? So you discussed it, and I uh, may add some things, but I uh, don't want to preempt your feedback. I was saying, I thought it was really interesting because I'd never seen um, like explicitly Christian art that was so abstract. Mm. So um, I'm, I've seen like work by Christian artists, like contemporary Christian artists, that's less abstract or like not about kind of explicitly Christian mm. theology. Sure. Um, but then um, my two thoughts on it were, first of all, that it was so the idea of like grace foretold, and there is actually the idea in prophecy of like abstraction and not being sure like what it's pointing forward to and it's like you see mm. you see slightly but you can mm. see clearly what, what it is mm-hmm. so I thought in some ways that um, like fits really well and then I also thought that um, so it's interesting that perhaps part of the reason I haven't really seen this sort of work is because we're like very concerned with like communication mm. so we're all about like communicate clearly and like explain clearly and um, yeah. we see clearly what the prophets only dimly saw and that that seems to be a mm. like maybe it, maybe the reason why I haven't seen very much kind of abs- abstract art about explicitly Christian matters is because that's like very culturally how we mm. like wish to explain the gospel. It's like don't leave any room for ambiguity or yes. just like make sure they're understood. Yeah, yeah. Definitely don't communicate any theology by, I don't know, telling parables or <laughs> things that people have to sort of think about and go away and think, well, what does he mean by that then? You know, yeah. We don't have any examples of that in the Christian tradition, do we? It's all got to be very straightforward, you know, let me lay it out here. It's funny, isn't it? It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone else? Or reflect anything back from the discussions? Well, here's, here's what it kind of... It's communicating, because it's art. <laughs> um, here's what it says to me. Um, we, 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 we have down here, we have 
blank white emptiness at the bottom. Uh, at the top, we have the gold, the shimmering, the glories, the heavenlies. Coming out of the heavenlies down into my emptiness is this torrent of, of blue, green, sort of waterfall of life colours. The blue, green, what is that, this sort of waterfall, this torrent of grace. I'm, I, I, my emptiness is receiving grace out of glory. It's just pouring down uh, into our emptiness. Um, in a sense, you know, this whole abstract or, or not, but that's what it, I think, is, is communicating. What about the, the song, the, uh, the, the lyrics? What did you feel, think about those? Unchristian to do them. Plenty of the psalms, for example, are sort of you know the the situation of the the psalmist, the feelings of the <coughs> protagonist, or, or whatever. But yeah, this this piece is very transcendent, directed again, very outward directed. What else? There's an even deeper truth, as it were. But it's interesting you, you pick up on... on it, it is recognising a, a situation of fallenness that needs redeeming. It, it's not a, oh, let's just look at the world in three rose-coloured glasses kind of thing, because it, it, it is saying things appear to have died, things need restoring... To be as they should. Things are not as they should be at, at the moment. Um, it, it, it recognizes that reality that there is fear, that there is fallenness, and so on. But yeah, it has this. But the deepest truth is that that will be overcome. Um, so there's a sort of realism to it, but I, I heard someone in the discussion say hope. There's a feeling of, of hope uh, about it. I really, yeah, I really like a lot of Celtic music, and I think I, I think it often has a 
quite a sort of mysterious, slightly ethereal mm. feeling to it. And I find for some reason Celtic and Gosh makes me feel quite nostalgic, even though they're mm. from Celtic mostly. <laughs> <laughs> um, not quite sure why, but it's that kind of sense of something yeah. something not quite attained but hoped for. Mm. Mm. Um, and so it does really fit, I think, with a lot of like you know, people like Stuart Townsend use it really well don't they, to express Christian truths. Mm. Yeah, I guess I, I, I mean these two pieces of art are made completely independent of one another, but I think they fit together nicely because of this this this, this theme of um, in the second verse here. You know, a love that will heal, a love that will restore like water to the desert. It's kind of <laughs> um, yeah. So. And then one day, as it were, once upon a time, culture turned its back on God and looked into the modernist worldview mirror and asked the question, who is the fairest of them all? And the worldview of modernism said something along these lines. According to science, which is, of course, the only way to know anything anyway, uh, man is the fairest of them all. Uh, although we do have to acknowledge that an unverifiable term like uh, fair is merely an expression of our emotion. Uh, anyway, a man is the most rational being to have arisen via the blind watchmaker of neo-Darwinian evolution, a child of mother nature who will soon come of age and reject all those childish silly superstitions about God and religion as science and technology will lead us into the glorious uplands of progress and the future. Come with us. Hurrah. Here's some other expressions of a modernist worldview. This is the atheist uh, Will Provine. There are no gods, no purposive forces of any kind. No life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain that I'm going to be completely dead. That's just all that's going to be the end of me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. Yeah, uh, he's laying, I think he's laying it out very consistently from a materialist point of view. <laughs> um, <laughs> the atheist uh, Michael Roos, in his recent book, Atheism, What Everyone Needs to Know, says this, if you become a non-believer, then you have left the security of your childhood. There's this modernist growing up theme. Um, there is no ultimate meaning, and secular attempts to find a substitute simply aren't going to do it. It's gone forever. Or atheist Alex Rosenberg, in his recent book, The Atheist's Guide to Reality, Enjoying Life Without Illusions. The illusions of religion, you know, the God delusion and all that. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Well, everything pretty much goes on as before. 
except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. Yeah. That kind of surprised me. I thought they would think there's no ultimate free will because there's no kind of reality structures anymore. Why, why is that argument made? Uh, because what is the nature of reality? It's what physics says it is. What does physics say it is? Well, it says it's a collection of material objects governed by the laws of physics, interacting with one another over time by the laws of physics. What is a human being? A subset of physical reality interacting over time according to the laws of physics. <laughs> So, therefore, because it's not like deviate from the yeah. rules. And so, yeah. So, there is still a structure to reality, but it's kind of determined by physics. Right. Physics is the ultimate reality. What physics discovered discovers is the ultimate nature of reality. Yeah. And that's the only kind of reality that there is as well. So, there's no non physical reality capable of intervening within material reality to make things happen differently you know you don't have a soul there's no god who could work miracles there's, there's just this phys- big physical object made up of lots of little physical objects called the cosmos you might be going on to this but yeah. how does he say that you do in your life yeah, I was say, how does he live his life yeah like what's his conclusion because he doesn't say like having a rubbish life without illusions which that would be too on so what's his like big big like reveal <laughs> well, that, th- this is kind of his creed, yeah. as it were. Um, it's living without illusions. Mm. So that reveals to me an expression of a belief in the value of truth. Yeah. Mm. Isn't it? He's committed to truth and he thinks all this religious mumbo jumbo is not true. We need to grow up and realise it and face the music and be consistent. So there's something valuable about the integrity of being consistent. So truth and integrity, he thinks, are valuable. And yet, he also thinks there is no difference between good and bad. It's interesting, he does say there's no moral difference between them, but that that is admitting without that there is such a thing as moral difference. We're saying we have the concept of moral of moral difference, but he says that's a muddled concept that it doesn't really apply to anything. There's no moral difference between anything. Yeah, but isn't he saying there is a, there is like good and badness? I, I would disagree with that. I'd say he doesn't believe in moral difference because morality is nothing. But there is good and badness that you can buy into. Like you can live your life yeah, in. there might be things that we we label as good or or as bad, but there's there's no moral difference between. Right. Well this is this is to use the words good and good and bad in in, in, in a very weird way <laughs> I would say. To divorce the ideas of good and bad from the ideas of, of right and wrong. That it's that it's it's right to promote goodness and, and wrong to promote badness, <laughs> and he would say, "Well, no, no, you can't say that, oh, okay. you know, because there's no moral difference between." <laughs> he does think it's good to search out the truth. Well, it would seem so, doesn't it? Yeah, and they say, "Look, there's an inconsistency in what he's between what he's saying, and what he's doing." This is. 
disintegrative, this way of looking at, at reality. Um, he goes on, he says, individual human life is meaningless, without purpose, without ultimate moral value. We need to face the fact that nihilism, das nihil, the nothing, it is true. But, but why do we need to? <laughs> you know? He says, creating purpose in a world that can't have any is like trying to build a perpetual motion machine after you've discovered that nature's ruled them out. It's just impossible, he says. If this thing seems hard to take, there's always Prozac. That's not just an off-the-cuff joke. Towards the end of the book, he comes back. Uh, that's at the beginning. And towards the end of the book, he says, what should we scientistic folks do when overcome by world weariness? He says, this way of looking at the world might make you feel kind of depressed and uncomfortable. Um, I, I would want to say maybe this is a a clue to the fact that you're looking at the world in the wrong way, or at least you want to very seriously consider do you have to look at the world this way? Um, he says, uh, take two of whatever neuropharmacology prescribes. I think that's his answer to your question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> take drugs, yeah, you know. That's like risk as well. It's like science is the okay for people now instead of religion. Yeah. Literally. So I don't know precisely how these drugs that he's describing work. Mm. Also, there's an element to like denying reality, like take it to numb the reality. Like, yeah. You yeah. You've got to face up to reality, but if 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 you're not strong enough to cope, you know, <laughs> then take then take some pharmaceuticals. Yeah. It seems odd to bring his book enjoying life. A bit of a letdown. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't really deliver what he promised on the front on the front cover, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes editors are to blame for titles and books rather than authors, who, who knows? Yeah, he probably said how to not enjoy <laughs> <laughs> And the publisher said, That's not gonna sell, that's not gonna sell. <laughs> we need to sell. Yeah. Who knows? Um, can you explain the free will part? Yeah. Okay. So let, well, let's put it as um, um, there's a sort of, I think, a basic and very powerful argument from a materialist, naturalistic point of view against free will. And it would go like this um, Purely physical things, and purely physical objects, and purely physical collections of things, which just behave according to the laws of physics. Purely physical things don't have libertarian free will. They don't get choice. You know, um, one billiard ball hits the next billiard ball and momentum, the laws of momentum means that it then carries on and goes into the pocket. It doesn't get hit. Think, am I going to play today? No, I, can't. I don't want to do that. I'm going to go over there. <laughs> it just does, according to its inherent physical nature. So, physical things don't have libertarian free will. A human being is a purely physical thing. That's all they can be, because the only kind of thing there is on a materialistic worldview are physical things. So, physical things don't have free will. Human beings are physical things. Ergo, human beings don't have free will. So, what do they think of the mind? Well, that's just your brain. That's the workings of, of your brain. I 
like within the system of physics. So there are limited choices that we can make. We can't just go, I'm going to fly. Uh, no, it's even more than that. No, it, so it's more than that. It, it, it's you might think you make choices, but you don't. Is you it, don't have any choices. Is it that it's, it's not just that it's physics; it's like science in general. And so, like, we are physical objects, but we're very complex physical objects. And so, if you look at biology, like the brain is is a is a kind of organism that has electrical impulses in the same way that you know a rat's brain has electrical impulses. It's just it's just yeah. much simpler. So a rat's brain will say, "I'm hungry." and then go and find food, and then eat it, and then say, I want to procreate. And, it, and it's not that it's making the choice, it's that its brain is reacting as a biological organ to do that. Or an ant's so, brain, or a computer. Yeah, so, so ours is just much more complex version yeah. of that, where uh, like we respond to impulses you know, as a biological system, of like, I'm hungry, and then you choose to say, I'm going to eat sushi for lunch. But actually, that's just a biological process, it's not. Yeah. You, you don't actually have choice. Your brain is just functioning as, yeah. as an organism. Everything you do is the product of your heredity interacting with your environment, and both your heredity and your environment and their interaction are nothing but physical objects. Because that's all there is. <laughs> so, yeah. What does the modernist worldview make you feel? <laughs> I just read a review of it on the mm. New York Times, which basically was like, oh, he just says history's bunk, like arts and literature, like what even is that? So it's funny because even from a like a non-Christian point of view, it's mm. um, it's like wholly inadequate about what the yeah. truth is. Well, then this, this, this again is the conflict of like saying about, about the humanists who want to say, no, I think, I think there really are these values yeah, yeah. That, that I value. And I don't have to believe in God in order to recognise that, you know, human rights are important or whatever and to, to champion them. But that's sort of going from a, well, it just seems obvious to me that there are human rights and pursuing it. And this guy's coming from the point of view of saying, but hang on, I mean, if you work your way up from saying, Fact number one, materialism is true, there is no God, there's only matter. Where does that lead you if you're consistent with it? He'd say, well, that would lead you to the point of saying there, there are no objective human rights. And you can't choose whether or not you support them or not anyway. Mm. <laughs> it, just, it seems very, although they try and lay it out as very logical, it's, it's very counterintuitive. That's yes. not how we feel. Yeah. That's, that's good. That's major. Yeah. And we see even even he in trying to say let's all be be clear-eyed and realistic about this, in the very act of trying to communicate that to us seems to evince his intuition in the value of things like truth and integrity mm. and living without delusion and all sorts of of things which his own philosophy tells him can't be real. <laughs> so you. you, you you see, the philosophy starts pulling you apart the more, the more consistently you try and live with it. Uh, Nancy Pierce's book, Saving Leonardo, a wonderful uh, tour uh, through, again, the history of ideas and art and literature and all sorts of things, very nicely produced book, um, good uh, companion piece to what we're doing here today. Uh, no, it's particularly on, on this value thing. 
the, the strict separation of facts from values, she says, is the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. People have always known that there is a distinction between is and ought, between the descriptive statements and normative statements. You know. But in earlier ages, people thought that both types of statement dealt with questions of truth. If you made a moral statement about what someone ought to do, then it was either true or false. Factually correct or incorrect. Uh, and the scientific modernist view of Rosenberg et al. rejects that. And it makes this distinction between facts and values. We've got this. We have facts at the bottom here. And they are, they are publicly available. They're objective. They're not dependent upon us, but they're discovered, not invented. They're universal. You know, it's the experiment gets the same results in China as it does in Timbuktu. Um, they are discovered, things discovered by the naturalistic sciences. What's the nature of reality? What physics does it is? You know, etc. And then... Is she a Christian? Yeah. Uh, who? Is she a Christian? Yes, Nancy Pierce is a Christian uh, apologist in America. Uh, uh, and then we have what Francis Schaeffer, if you've read any of his works, referred to as the leap into the upper story of values, meaning and purpose, which on this view of things are, all, are private. Well, that's true for you, you know. Um, they're subjective, they're, they're invented, they're relative to your, you as an individual or your, your culture. They're relative, they're invented by humans, not discovered by them. And there's this, that's facts and values, different and this is the move to be rejected at the very beginning <laughs> on a pre-modernist understanding of reality this split is not not real <laughs> even if you believe that the values aren't true can you still believe that they're good for like the fact that it means mm. well it, the question would be what what would you mean by saying it's good you would not mean that it is a public, objective, true for everyone thing that is discovered about reality that it is good. You would simply mean that I, as a personal, private individual, have a subjective feeling <laughs> relative to me um, that is not dis a discoverable part of reality, of reality out there independent of me, that it's, in inverted commas, good. I, it's something I happen to like. Well, if it brought the most biological pleasure and the most biological harm. Yeah, this is the Sam Harris uh, route to um, uh, values. Um, or you say, um, OK, it, it's contributing to the biological functioning of that organism or detracting from the biological functioning of that organism. Is the biological functioning of a particular organism a good thing or not so just like the evolutionary mm. kind of worldview then it needs to like if you can oppress some people to make yep. like evolutionary strong people happy and go forward and society yeah. let society function by getting rid of people who like don't function properly who are disabled or yeah. aren't as clever yeah 
this is uh, back to we'll have Nietzsche later, but you know Nietzsche, Nietzsche said uh, Christ, Christianity has, has has led to the, basically the enfeeblement of the Western races because it teaches that that um, looking after the weak and the sick and the disabled and so on is a virtue. So in oh. that scenario, do you think that not good objectively, but like mm. positive or something like that? I like it. You, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. you would have a positive feeling of some sort towards, yeah, like letting the weak die out. So yeah. you could have a collective group of people that thought that values were neither good or bad, mm. but they're invested in values of a certain sort. Right, yes. Yeah. So Nietzsche argued that, uh, that the terms good and evil don't have any meaning, but we should replace them with the terms strong and weak. But by doing that, of course, he's not saying strong is good no. and weak is bad. Think that is yeah. Sure, but you could choose to think the opposite, and and the, and then if you ask the question, and which of those two contradictory views is true, or f- the answer is well, what well, a stupid question. But you can have two separate societies working where one thinks strong is true, yeah. and one thinks weak is true, and that would be fine. Yeah, that, that, so there's a there's a difference in opinion, but there's no difference in in you know which one is right, which one is wrong is a not is a non question. Yeah. Don't you have to ask like why do why do none of us like keep on living? Like we have a desire within us for life, yeah, and that is a biological thing. So then, all these things of good and bad. Yeah. It's like I want to live, yeah. I want like to not die, basically. So mm. therefore, good things will preserve many. Yeah, but then we're back to that pragmatic sense of since I do want this, yeah. the best way to achieve it is that. But the thing that I want is not inherently and objectively good. I've seen through that. <laughs> yeah. But, so what? That would be a humanist responsibility. What's wrong with that? As I don't think that, like, that is a basis. I mean, of, of values. Well, well, I would say it, it, it's it's a it's an it's a rejection of um, values, or it's a rejection of of that traditional way of understanding what values are. It's it's. You know, is this a rose by any other name situation? Is a matter of, of definition, but you're you're thinking about value in a very different way. Um, and if you retain the language consistently, you have to realise that what you're saying is now all of that pre-modern talk about good and bad and right and wrong is meaningless. It doesn't refer to anything. is is incorrect. I want to replace that by putting those language labels onto some very different concepts. Potentially, but humans could still say like, "Love your neighbours, love yourself." They just get rid of love for Lord your God, because loving your neighbour as yourself leads to like exist prolonged existence for everyone. Right. But see, what they're doing there is they're they're translating. You ought to love your neighbour, or it is good to love your neighbour, and they're translating that into. Um, you will find it useful to do nice things for your neighbour. And I would say those, those two sentences are not equivalent. They're not saying the same thing. <laughs> they're, they're they're saying I've seen through your understanding of of good and evil and right and wrong, and I now want to translate that language into the language of reality which is the language of a meaningless, purposeless reality with no inherent goodness, badness, rightness, wrongness, etc. Just preservation, yeah. 
identity. The fact that they, they transfer the, the linguistic labels is just a fig, fig leaf on that reality. <laughs> and this fact-value distinction has generally been maintained in, in one of two ways. Either the idea that, that value propositions are literally meaningless, like nonsense poetry, or the idea that value propositions are just are false. So that the meaningless route goes back to, particularly in Britain, A.J. Eyre, and his little book, Language, Truth and Logic, from 1936. Um, it was a movement in philosophy that was, uh, at that time, analytic philosophy was very, very concerned with how do we use language? What do we mean by things? When is our use of language meaningful? And this uh, group of um, philosophers called the verificationists, the positivists, uh, had this sort of criteria, this rule about when language was meaningful. And the rule basically said... Uh, that the meaning of any statement that's not true by simply by definition, so something can be true by definition, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, a triangle has three sides, whatever that's true by definition, a bachelor is an unmarried man, well, of course, that's, that's how we use language, that's what it means. Uh, and it lies in its ability to be empirically verified, at least in principle. So language is meaningful if you can check out its consequences with the five senses, basically. Um, if I uh, said uh, the dark side of the moon is made of cheese, okay, that's a silly thing to say, but it's meaningful. Uh, why is it meaningful? Because, at least in principle, were I to find myself on the dark side of the moon, even though I might never do so, with a spoon, <laughs> I would know what to do, empirically speaking, in order to check out whether that's true or not. Okay, so language is meaningful if it's true by definition, or you can check it out empirically, scientific. Evidence. That's when language is meaningful. If you find something to be false, does it then become not meaningful? Um, no. So, um, yeah, so if I said the dark side of the moon is made of cheese, and I'm there, and I pick up a spoon, and I go, that's not cheese. I've, I've falsified the statement. It was a meaningful statement that's not true. Yeah, but then it can, surely it can then no longer be meaningful because you can't, you can no longer empirically verify it. So if you've shown that it isn't made of cheese, mm-hmm. if someone then said the moon is made of cheese, you can say no, it's not. Yeah, so it's a, it's, that's a meaningful claim, but it's a false I think meaningful it's, claim. I think it's meaningful claim. It's verified or falsified. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, but what I mean is, once that's happened, it has been. The next person said it, they would still falsify it again. Yeah. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, it, it, just it, potentially, the fact that it's potentially. Mm-hmm. Verifiable yeah. okay. is going to have that, that consequence, yeah. So, AJ famously in Language, Truth, and Logic said this applying this line of thought to religion, he said, To say God exists is to make a metaphysical utterance, oh dear, which cannot be either true or false. If a putative proposition fails to satisfy the verification principle and is not a tautology, it's not true by definition, then it is metaphysical. And being metaphysical, it's neither true nor false, but literally senseless. It's meaningless. Now, for, for such a philosopher at, at this period, to say God exists is to say something meaningless. Not to say something false, you just haven't said anything. It's as if I would, I would say, well, I think that... 
what have I, what have I claimed? Is that true or false? Well, non-questions. And he's saying, that, that's a non-question. But also, of course, for such a philosopher to say, um, there is no God. Atheism is true. Is meaningless. To say, I don't know whether or not there's a God is meaningless. The whole discussion is off the table, as is discussions about, is it true that torturing small children for fun is objectively wrong? Well, he would say, is that, you know, is it true by, by definition? No. Um, can you empirically check that? No, what you can empirically check, Sam Harris, is does torturing small children stop their biological functioning? <laughs> But that's, you know. Evangelically, just limiting language to referring to the kind of material world. Yeah. The only thing you can physically, like, check out. Yes. Absolutely. So, we've just narrowed down what we can talk about to. To within his new parameters. Yeah. Which kind of nullifies then the conversation of anything. Yeah, and that's like that. Beauty, morals, anything transcendent is is off the table. When these people are around, do some people not argue that you can inherit the test Yes. Uh, particularly John Hick. This was one of, there were a number of moves. This was a very short-lived movement. Um, it was very influential, and you will find its influence incredibly within the New Atheist movement today. Um, this philosophy was big in the, like, 30s, 40s in Oxford, in the era of people like A.J. Eyre, Gilbert Ryle, etc., People like um, Richard Dawkins, although he didn't do philosophy, but lots of the new atheists, most of them studied their doctoral work at Oxford University. And their supervisors were people like A.J. Eyre, Gilbert Ryle. So they're one intellectual generation removed from this kind of thinking, and you can, the ghost of this sort of positivistic thinking hangs over them. Um, a number of reasons why it collapsed. One, exactly this, this point that you make. Um, John Hick particularly pointed out that religious claims, some religious claims, can fit the verification criteria. So John Hick said, hang on a minute, Christianity believes in the afterlife and the resurrection of the dead. What happens if I die and I find myself in my new resurrected body talking to Jesus and St. Peter <laughs> at the pearly gates? Um, isn't that an empirical verification of a religious truth claim. So, although the positivists were trying to rule off religious discussions by this narrow definition of the meaningfulness of language, actually, as you, as you say, you can point out that actually you, you can phrase religious truth claims in such a way that they are empirically verifiable. Also, you might say, very well, look, we just know that some things do have meaning that don't fit the verification criteria. I know it's meaningful to say whether or not I believe in God. However much you say, no, you're talking nonsense. I know know it's meaningful to claim that rainbows are beautiful and that torturing children is wrong and that I believe in God. So if your philosophy of language doesn't have space for that kind of talk... Well, so much the worse for your philosophy of language, mate. Why should, why should I be the one kowtowing here, given this contradiction? And finally, and crucially, the verification criteria doesn't fit the verification criteria. 
it's a self-contradictory view, and it doesn't get worse in philosophy than being self-contradictory. You cannot be right if you're contradicting yourself. If you say, language is only meaningful if it's true by definition, or I could potentially check it out with my five senses, turn the question on, view on itself. Is that true by definition? No. How would you check out the truth of that claim using my five senses? Oh. <laughs> so this is why this movement in philosophy of language didn't last very long. Indeed, A.J. Eyre, who published the, the prime work in Britain on it, later rejected it. In later life, he said, I just stated the verification rule dogmatically, and an extraordinary number of people seem to be convinced by my assertion. He said, the verification principle is defective. He said, nearly all of it was false, talking about positivism. He said, logical positivism died a long time ago. I don't think much of language truth and logic is true. I think it's full of mistakes. <laughs> well, kudos for actually admitting that you got it wrong. Well, well you know, good. <laughs> well done. Um, but if only the, you know, the Dawkinses of the world and so on would pay more attention to, to that kind of thing. Quite a weak admission, though. <laughs> yeah. So this 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 kind of view has then shifted from from saying this is about the when language is meaningful. Shift that kind of thinking to now saying no 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 it's not about when language is meaningful but it is about when when you things you say in language are true or not. Let's keep that same kind of narrow way of getting at reality and so and it's not about getting at meaning okay, m- things can be meaningful if they don't fit those criteria but we're not allowed to say that they're true or f- false if they don't fit them and that's, that's scientism the, the idea that science is the only way to know about reality so Rosenberg you know, being scientist it just means treating science as our exclusive guide to reality the only way to acquire knowledge, or Peter Atkins in his book on being. Uh, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality. He's another of these neo-atheists trained at Oxford. Um, I got a wonderful uh, clip from a, a rather an old 1998 debate between the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig and uh, Peter Atkins when they're having a sort of d- led discussion time after the formal debate. Um, they debated again uh, more recently in, 20, in 2011. And in 2011, you can find the video on, on, online. I, I was actually privileged to be the guy leading the led discussion between them in 2011. But uh, back in 1998, it was William Buckley uh, in America. But here uh, uh, is Bill Craig absolutely dismantling um, Peter Atkins' scientific uh, understanding of, of uh, knowledge. <laughs> oh, you, you can you can um, find the whole the whole uh, debate online still, if um, if you want to uh, see more of it. So, uh, a scientific, not scientific, but scientific demand that that every rational belief must be justified by evidence is again it's so it's a self contradictory view, because it can't be justified by evidence. <laughs> Indeed, it would entail an infinite regress that you couldn't satisfy if you, if you say, um, is belief A rational? Well, only if I have um, evidence for it. 
cool the belief that there is um, a set of evidence that does support A. Call that B. Well, is my belief in B and its support for A rational? Well, only if I have evidence for that. Call that C. Is my belief in C rational? Well, only if I have... See what, what's going to happen here. What, what you're really saying is nothing you believe is rationally justified. But then that view itself is not rationally justified, so why should I believe it? <laughs> if nothing's rationally justified, then the claim that nothing I believe is rationally justified is not rationally justified. So, you know... And also these just, you know, the obvious counterexamples like moral knowledge, mathematical knowledge, logical knowledge, aesthetic knowledge, etc. Knowledge of, of God. <laughs> Any uh, questions of clarity about that before we do a little bit more art appreciation? <laughs> okay, but a bit of modernist art appreciation here. Um, this is a very famous collage uh, made by the British artist uh, Richard Hamilton in 1956 uh, for the London Art Exhibition. This is tomorrow! The name of the art exhibition. This is tomorrow. And the title of this collage is Just What Is It That Makes Today's Home So Different, So Appealing? Rather funny title. Just What Is It That Makes Today's Home So Different, So Appealing? And uh, we can see all sorts of uh, examples of what it might be that makes today's home so different and so appealing from the, the homes of the past. I think this is, uh, you know, relatively soon. This is like just a, a decade after the end of uh, World War Two. Probably um, sweet rationing. It took a lo long time to end after the end of World War Two. It might still be, you know, just around that time. Um, when the economy is beginning to get back on its feet, things are beginning, being, the bombed out cities are beginning to be rebuilt and so on, and people are looking forward to you know, science and technology leading us into the sunny uplit, uplands. And uh, we have this uh, sort of ideal homes exhibition art exhibition. And uh, I mean, a lot of this looks very old-fashioned to us. You sort of have to, to think yourself back to the 1950s and sort of think, oh, you know, they're there with their, their, their cutting-edge technology in their home. They've got a home, home hi-fi system. There's a tape-to-tape recorder here. There, there they are with their iPod, you know, at home. The, their, their TV. Everybody, you know, a nice big Jumbotron LCD 3D telly. Uh, equivalent, as it were, where you could go to the cinema and see a see a talkie. Yeah, the drudgery of of keeping up a home has now been lessened by modern technology. We have this, you know, the the gliding Hoover with the long extendable cords. So you can get all the way to the top of the stairs. How wonderful, you know. And uh, comic books, teen young romance. So the still from the, the the comic book here. We have the explanation. This is a photo of the planet Mars making up the, the ceiling here and uh, a beach and uh, sort of a very sort of modernist metal frame furniture where I have a nice tin of, uh, of tinned ham 
<laughs> giant, huge sort of tin ham on the on the table here. Um, but again, you know, um, tin, the idea of tinned meat is very modern. Uh, you don't have to go and, and uh, kill your cow. Um, Ford, the uh, the lampstand here. Ford cars, a big popsicle. He's obviously ripped. He's got lots of time to go and work out down at the gym, lots of leisure time and so on. Um, she's enjoying herself on the sofa here in a rather sexually liberated manner with a, uh, a lampstand on her head. I don't know why there's a, a lampstand on her head, but there you go. Um, so here are some of the, the, the uh, elements of what is it that makes today's home so different, so appealing after the, the horrors and the vicissitudes of, of World War II and, and so on. Um, Let me give you a few moments to discuss with the person next to you this uh, collage uh, and, and, and what sort of worldview, what sort of spirituality you feel it is communicating. Giant ham. Yeah, for the bulk. The only way you can bulk that much is by giant ham. Yeah. Yeah. So what spiritual outlook uh, is this uh, artwork communicating? Is it a spiritual inward look? Mm. Oh, good. Yes, okay, interesting. So we, yeah, we talked about the outward-looking nature of the, 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 the Christian art we looked at earlier. The, yeah, it's very inward-looking. Right. It's kind of consumerist, which is a big theme of, of modernist culture. Um, but we thought there was also that that like personal glorification thing. So pretty like in Victorian culture, mm. very um, like polite or polite word, like mm-hmm. you everything was very covering. You wanted to be very like modest. Yeah. And that, right. that came from a kind of religious perspective of like yeah. is good and you shouldn't whereas this is the complete opposite. It's like mm. if you're like Jack's, then yeah. you're your pants. Why yeah. not? Yeah. You, then you're that glorified yeah. yourself. You're yeah. If you've got it, flaunt it. You know, exactly, that's yeah. the, yeah. The the Just do it. Yeah. You're worth it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And so, so there's all that of like self-glorification. Um, mm. And also like self-improvement. So mm-hmm. it's like, you can eat giant bits of ham and go to the gym all the time. Yeah. And you'll be great. So yeah. it's all about making yourself great. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's all about like comfort and like pleasure and mm-hmm. all these other things to contrive like make your life as easy and pleasurable and happy as possible. Yeah. In the sixties was a decade of optimism, wasn't it? So uh-huh. that's what it was with Mars above, perhaps a non space exploration. Yeah, space exploration, the space program. Put a man on the moon. We're going to go to Mars next. We'll be you know, having colonies there by the end of the decade. Uh, yeah. Uh, where's you know where's my hoverboard? <laughs> Um, yeah, where's my home robot? I do have a home robot. I've got one of those ro- robot vacuum cleaners. Uh, I was promised. I was promised a home robot in the books I used to read in, from the library in the nineteen seventies about the homes of the future. Yeah, it didn't quite live up to the promise, but uh, <laughs> maybe we're getting there. Uh, uh, yeah, it doesn't take the stairs. No, you still need. Yeah, I live in a flat, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did they have like a man on the moon in 
like the next decade, but like they hadn't, they'd like are still excited about it an extendable vacuum cleaner. I don't understand how technology works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you look in the yeah. loop probe, it's really old school. Like it hasn't got like screens and stuff, but like, you know, it's got yeah. like little switches and things like that. It's, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, let me read you a quote from the artist about what the artist thought he was doing and, and see if this surprises you or, or, or not in terms of what this picture is communicating to you. It said, Bacage attempted to summarise the various influences that were beginning to shape post-war Britain. We seem to be taking a course towards a rosy future and our changing, high-tech world was embraced with a starry-eyed confidence, a surge of optimism which took us into the 1960s. Does that surprise you at all? Some audiences shown this sort of feel... That's not what I took away from just looking at the art. <laughs> yeah, I think, sorry. Oh. I think we're looking at it from like a 20th century perspective. Yeah. It's not as great as you think it was, you know, it didn't all pan out with his rosy eye, but clearly he's writing mm. from like the 50s, and therefore yeah. the, what he's presented is entirely new with his kind of worldview. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. So I'm not really surprised. But so there was there was a disenchantment with this this modernist vision of the future as as the future kind of come, comes on and it doesn't kind of live up to the to the promise to the optimism. I don't know. I think we still we still have that optimism. Like we, we still think, oh, if I buy the new iPad, mm. then it'll make my life better. Or if I go to the gym and look great, then mm. it'll make my life better. Mm. Like, I think we still have the, the almost, maybe not to the, quite the same mm. extent, but we still have that mm. same optimism that, mm. you know, this high-tech thing is going to yeah, yeah. give yeah. us a better future. And well, that's a big driver of kind of consumerism, of the Western economic, economic kind of socio-political industrial military machine. <laughs> yeah. I think that's more about kind of progress and like this kind of vision towards progress and I'm wondering if it's like more sceptical about it now we're kind of I feel like we've almost passed that stage and I'm more like let's go back to our roots and it's been more like natural and stuff so we're kind of moving away from we're probably still progressing it's like deep down we probably still think that but we it's less of a let's just expand and kind of surge forward Mm -hmm. I think it's a far in that, you can replace everything in that picture with like, the next thing that we yeah. have now. Yeah. Mm. And actually, it's worse now because they genuinely were like, this is, this could be so great, whereas we know now that mm. it's not, it's but we still fall for it. So I think actually it's like, you could translate this to now, but it's actually like regressive rather than progressive yeah. based on what it was there. Like, instead of tin ham, you'd have like an organic spirit yeah. line and milk cream or something. But yeah. 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 you still know <laughs> Yeah. So well, but, but actually do we like because it's the same thing like even within the energy sector people are like oh yeah you know let's make super solar panels and all this and then like the reality is that without energy storage we can't use any of these things but people are like no it's okay because we'll just invent it like it's going to happen like, that's just science like, we still do yeah. the same like really optimistic fool for the promissory note yeah kind of 
I think the difference is I'd be surprised to see that in an art gallery. So like there's like in I'd be surprised to see that in an advert. But I'd be very surprised mm. to like go to Tate Modern and see like, oh look, life is wonderful, and if you get this, then you'll be alright. Because mm. there's a kind of cynicism where where it's just like you say, like I think it's just we know it's we know it's we like know it's false, mm. Mm. but we still fall for it. But mm. our like the philosophical and artistic mm. world is like, oh, you can see it's all meaningless, even mm. though we <laughs> we're kind of we're self aware of, the, of what we yeah, do, yeah. but we still do it anyway. Yeah. Which I wonder is. <laughs> Turn, so it's even more mucked up. <laughs> yeah. Like, because there's so much, it's kind of an assault on the senses. So I mm. assume the artist was like, oh, this is grim. Look at mm. So some people have looked at this and, and, and yeah, and, and thought the artist was being sort of facetious, and they get this feeling of oh, look at the hollowness, mm. the self-centeredness, the materialism of modern life. But I think clearly at the time, according to the artist himself, that wasn't what he was doing. <laughs> Maybe that's us looking at it now, knowing yeah. that these delivered what they yeah. honestly could. I, I, I think that I think you're right. <laughs> but this, this sort of the self-centeredness and the hollowness and so on. This is this is back to remember we talked at the beginning about about idolatry and trying to get blood from a stone and trying to get wholeness and satisfaction from something that that isn't really the thing that's designed to give it that we're designed to get it from rather. Um, Should have time for this before the fire alarm at eleven o'clock. That's uh, scheduled. Surprise, <laughs> surprise alarm. alarm. So when the surprise alarm goes, we will all orderly make an orderly, panicked, stampede for the you know. <laughs> now, um, Richard Hamilton, the artist, was tutor to a guy called Brian Ferry. He was tutor and mentor to Brian Ferry at the University of Newcastle. Brian Ferry was the lead singer of the band Roxy Music. Probably the most famous song by the band Roxy Music is the song In Every Dream Home, A Heartache, which is a 1970s song, I think, early 70s song, based on this artwork, but reflecting upon the modernism of contemporary culture from... Uh, a much more disenchanted place. This is, I've got the lyrics on your, your handouts and so on as well. This is a dark and at least 15 certificate song. <laughs> uh, let's uh, listen to it and then we'll have a fire alarm and afterwards we can discuss it. <laughs> it is not a happy little ditty. Um, so there could be a fire alarm moment and when we come back we'll, um, we'll have a reflection upon what that's reflecting on the nature of consumerist, modernist... Um, commodified society and relationships, etc. <laughs> A couple of questions people have asked over break. Uh, I do indeed recommend that Nancy Piercy book. Um, it's available as a Kindle version as well as a, a nice hardback. Um, Nancy Piercy is a Christian female apologist at Houston Baptist University in the States who both have an interesting emphasis on the arts and apologetics and seem to be co uh, collecting a, a hub of, of female apologists, which is a, a good thing. We need more female Christian apologists and uh, folks like Nancy Piercy, Holly Ordway, Mary Jo Sharp, etc. are 
uh, associated with Houston Baptist Uni in the States. Uh, let me draw your attention to the back of the, the worksheets for the handouts, page six, um, are references to, to podcasts that are podcasts of uh, me doing some of this material with students from my college in Norway, but also the um, our YouTube playlist that I've created on my YouTube channel on the Understanding Culture playlist, and I've got one an- another one on there uh, about worldviews as well. Loads of stuff on my YouTube channel, but particularly that Understanding Culture one includes videos of lectures by Nancy Piercy uh, and others on a lot of this kind of uh, material. So um, if this is um, interesting you, then you might want to go there as your next stop of the free material. Okay. So we're listening to that Roxy Music song. um, And the interesting sort of contrast of that song was based on that optimistic piece of art and was then a very unoptimistic, uh, angry and disillusioned uh, piece of music uh, based on the same themes, both coming out of the, the same uh, worldview. And again, trying to, to get us to have not just an, an intellectual understanding of, of the sort of description of the materialistic worldview that's been given to us by Ruth and Provine and Rosenberg and so on, but a, a sort of emotional inhabiting or feeling of what it's like to walk in the shoes of, of, of that spirituality, of that spiritual culture. Um, so uh, would anyone like to toss in some reflections on uh, that contrast of the Roxy Music song, how it made you feel, what it's reflecting about contemporary culture uh, as coming from a sort of materialistic uh, worldview that's saying, well, you know, matter is all there is and people are just bits of matter uh, and science is the only way to know anything and science is great because it gives us technology and that'll make us fulfilled there was this total unrealised disappointment in the 70s and that's reflected on the music mm. to Cuban Missile Crisis, Cold Wars of discontent it's this kind of a gosh utopia didn't quite work yeah which you see in that door mm. as well mm. Mm. Yeah. but then you need something to supersede it mm. And that, I mean, that's sort of like the New Age movement, the stuff mm. it came from, but it didn't really succeed. It, like that, that hasn't proved more um, yeah. compelling than the consumerist mm. vision, which we still have, I think. <coughs> yeah. Yes. Well, it's almost, in, in a sense, you could rather cynically, perhaps, <laughs> say that the, the, the Western New Age movement was a sort of Western consumerization of Eastern spirituality. Um, and a sort of Westernized, sort of, um, that sort of modernist, um, consumerist choice-driven way of going about things. It's, it's the supermarket applied to spirituality. Well, I have a little bit of Buddhism... And I like this bit of yoga, and I'll, I'll oh, Jostics, and uh, you know this, and, and they're all things I can buy. And I'll buy some tarot, you know, angel tarot cards. I have that, and I'll, you know, I'll, whatever feels good to you. Um, I like that. I choose this. This will fulfil me. It's not like I, let me go after a, a consistent religious tradition and try and sort of discipline myself to it or whatever. It, it's. How, how can I get fulfilment in my modern consumerist culture by becoming spiritual, by, you know... Yeah, 
what do you mean that? What, what did you say? So, so there's this disillusion of the 70s with materialism that it doesn't actually satisfy. Mm -hmm. But you need a more, you need something to supersede that as like a reason for living, I suppose, or to have hope. Yeah. And there hasn't been anything that's more compelling than consumerism, which we even recognise that it isn't going to satisfy, so it hasn't been replaced. Okay, I'd probably say that New Age movement still does exist, like healthy body, health and mind. Yeah. It's kind of like a common, like you have a materialist age in your life and then you're kind of like, oh, okay, this works for me, healthy body, healthy mind, and that's kind of where we are now. Do you not think it's similar to what you were saying, that we don't go, healthy body, healthy mind, let's stop buying things. We go, what can I buy to achieve that? Rather than what can I stop buying? Perfect example of this. Um, about a year ago, I think, I think it was, I was in um, um, the John Lewis stores, you know, not only is John Lewis, John Lewis shop in Southampton, their, their catalogue for the John Lewis store, uh, front cover uh, article of the catalogue, uh, I'm not going to get the exact words, but it was along the lines of, um, here are the things that you can buy in store in order to go minimalist in your life. <laughs> And declutter your life by buying lots of minimalist furniture, you know. Uh, and just the, the, the paradox of sort of, uh, and yeah, adopt this more simple sort of spiritual lifestyle by spending money in our shop uh, was <laughs> uh, sort of hit me quite powerfully uh, at the time. I thought that, that just says something about the age that we, that we live in. Um, I throw everything in the, the new age was... was a lot bigger in the in the eighties uh, and the early nineties than it is now. But it, it once once these movements kind of begin, they tend to then carry on all, all, all in parallel. You know, there, there was there was a time when deism, the belief in a god who hadn't revealed himself in any special special revelation, was quite a big thing in the Enlightenment era, and to some of the founders of America and so on. You know, there are still deists around today, but not. it's not a sort of big intellectual movement or anything. But once these things begin, they tend to carry on in some shape or form, spluttering or otherwise. So, yeah, there are still New Ages and the people into Wicca, etc. But it's like, it's not the huge kind of cultural phenomena that it was in the, in the 80s, 90s. It was like the beginning that song was, I think the beginning of the whole like disintegration stuff that you were talking about mm. and like even the way that the lyrics work with music mm. and like the musical work together and it all just kind of falls to pieces mm. um, yeah. but it was pretty pressing as well yeah okay. yeah I was just like it's not going to change it like it's mm. like Yeah. There's no sense of, 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 of a redemption of that situation. Mm -hmm. Now, back to, back to the Iona song, we had a, a recognition of, of fallenness and longing for something more, and a hope, a hopefulness. We've talked about hope there for something more. Um, 
and not, not a settling for it. And and here we've we've gone from in a modernist worldview, art expressing a, a hope, and then art expressing that that hope was very soon collapsed and thin. And but there isn't anything that even could potentially really redeem this situation. Um, you've just got to live with it. If you can't cope with it, back to Rosenberg, take some Prozac. Yeah, it really yeah. lacks vision compared to the the Yeah, it's it's thin gruel for for sustaining. Life, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Modernism in architecture. Back to we started with uh, Salisbury Cathedral as an art, architectural expression of, of Christian spirituality. This is the the French uh, architect uh, nicknamed uh, the Crow, Le Corbusier, nineteenth um, to twentieth century, died in nineteen sixty five. He's the French architect who famously called houses machines to live in. This is his vision of architecture. And you can see on the sketchboard behind him, you know, boxes, boxes, very modern and a <coughs> picture of such a, you know, boxes within boxes. You live in your box, in your collection of boxes, and then you get into your movable box and you go to another box where you go to your little box office <laughs> in the little cubbyhole and you do your work in your box and then you get in your movable box and go back home to your box living next door to lots of other people who live in their boxes whose names you don't know and I think that, that sort of description of modern life will resonate with a lot of people saying yeah that's that's life <laughs> that's a bit depressing but the idea is it's a very pragmatic kind of view a very sort of um, well, let's be you know scientific and efficient about this. Yeah, there's there's, there's some kind of sop to. We've got to have some sort of aesthetic interest. That human beings don't really flourish without some beauty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like whimsical as well, like it's like it's not just kind of regimented colour, it's all different mm. together and so kind of creative in that sense. And kind of yes. Yeah. You've never made a machine that had random swatches of colour. Like yeah. Like yeah. Whimsical and yeah. machine, just because you can. Although Elon's blackboard, like the sun yeah. shines. Yeah. So. There's a bit of. So, uh, yeah, a worldview that's saying, well, there, there is only matter in the scientifically discoverable and discovered, and people are just biological machines and. Let's think of people and, and work and life and living as about machinery. And yeah, and, and yet this sense of the aesthetic, the transcendent, there's something needing something more than just your little concrete box. Let's put a little bit of colour on the concrete box. Yeah, why? It's interesting. Uh, I think architecture... Uh, is is used often very powerfully in in a film to communicate feeling. Uh, very struck recently, I watched the, um, uh, the the crime dra- drama The Bridge. If you've seen The Bridge, it was a, uh, it's about a, uh, well, there's two seasons of it. The first season is there's there's a murder that takes place and a body is dumped exactly on the border between uh, I think it was Denmark and Sweden on, on a bridge. 
And so two cops, a Swedish cop and a Danish cop, have to work together to solve the case. And the, the whole season, um, a bit like with um, the, the, uh, the series The Killing, they have the whole season is about solving the one case. And um, this sort of um, Swedish noir crime fiction has been a sort of big thing in, in literature. Um, the the Valander and so on, and there've been lots of you know, English remakes with uh, Kenneth Branagh and so on with the BBC doing Valander and um, a lot of it. Um, you know the the girl with the dragon tattoo uh, series and films, and then that was remade by David Fincher, wasn't it, as an American film with Daniel Craig and um, Naomi Rapace, I think. Um, but anyway, and a lot of the sort of sense of that sort of literature and TV series and films is the sort of the, the so-called the, the sort of contrast of the, the sort of ideal we're Northern European advanced culture, socialist sort of cultures and the sort of festering underbelly of the, the dehumanising um, ways of life and the fractured ways of life of the people living in, in this sort of advanced sort of society in civilization. And just I want to show you just the, the, the title sequence from the season one of The Bridge. And just notice how this is using not just the, the, the music, but just the, the photography of the of the the architecture in the city to, to communicate a sort of disquieted feeling about modern life. We get a little contrast with the, the old-fashioned architecture of the windmill. <laughs> but, but everything else is, is very modernist, concrete, steel, glass, all shot at night un, under the sort of sodium glare of, of the lights as everyone's in their little boxes, moving or otherwise. Um, and that, together with the, the music, which doesn't doesn't quite keep to a very regular rhythm. There are several points where the, the rhythm just sort of falls apart slightly, and it's very sort of um, sparse. Um, uh, and the lyrics about, you know, hollow, hollow girl, the hollowness of life, and so on. And just, it just beautifully sets up the whole kind of feeling of the, the sort of Swedish crime noir kind of genre. You don't, you don't want to watch binge watch too much of it in one go otherwise you get depressed you know <laughs> particularly if you watch the season of The Killing it's like okay the, today's episode is set during the, the daytime and uh, oh look it's raining and today's episode is now set in the night in the night time of that day and it's oh it's raining <laughs> <laughs> it's just like constantly wet and depressing and um, every other episode is at night and yeah <laughs> Or even in, in science fiction, this theme is used as well. The sort of, again, a sort of sense of disquiet about what living in, in the city does to humans and human uh, relationships. Uh, here's the very famous opening scene of um, Ridley Scott's uh, Blade Runner. Music by um, Vangelis, of course. Famous music score. Another still from Blade Runner, the, the city, the advertising, the, the media dominance of life, etc. Set at night again. And that's Beijing today. 
<laughs> so um, the, the vision of the future is <laughs> not really terribly futuristic anymore, apart from the lack of flying cars, you know. Um, but the industrial, the oil works, the, the city life, etc. Um, architecture expresses and is, 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 is then becomes used in art to express something of our worries about modernistic ways of of life. Another song. This is. Um, a little bit uh, gory, as it were. This is from the Life um, Life Works exhibition, Body Works exhibition, um, where they've um, they've taken sort of plasticized uh, actual human cadavers, and there was a travelling, famous travelling display. It's gone through various iterations um, of actual human cadavers in various. Positions of everyday tasks that you can you can wander around and kind of look at the inner workings of the the human body. And uh, Stuart John Wollstone Home uh, died in 2010. A musician from uh, big in the 70s, particularly I think it was the Moody Blues. Um, but as a solo artist, he went uh, around this exhibition and wrote a song reflecting upon. Uh, his feelings about going around this exhibition of of human bodies dis- displayed for public consumption, and wrote an interesting uh, song called "Blood and Bones" uh, off the back of it. And again, think back to um, the descriptions of the of the of the human person from um, Rosenberg and uh, Ruse and so on as we listen to to this. So basically, the rights are a requiem. Is of course a religious form of music for the pre-modern view of humanity as something more than just blood and bones, something that has a soul, etc., um, etc., et free will, intrinsic worth, and so on. And yet the song itself is almost back to this sort of you mentioned earlier, um, Jess, about the sort of intuitive sense that there's more to life than this. And that really powerfully comes through in, in, in this piece of music, I think. It, it seems to me there's more to life than this, than meets the eye. Something more than just the life we're living. Without a soul, we're nothing more than blood and bones. It seemed to be that this exhibition was saying, well, that, that is what, what you are. Live with it, like Rosenberg is actually saying, but... but like, if if that really is the case, how come a human being can even feel dissatisfied with that description of themselves? Um, there's almost this, this intuition um, that there is something more. So, what does this um, modernist culture make us feel, and why? Well, it's because of its its worldview description of what a human being is the kind of world we're living in, the kind of things that will make us flourish and (laughs) truly happy and so on, is it actually matching up with reality? And if it's not, well, that might explain why we have such problems with it. (laughs) There's a weird contradiction 
between the person being the most important thing, it's all about making yourself and your life great and mm. self-improving and stuff like that, and then also that life is meaningless. Mm. So you have no worth. When you die, it makes no difference. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it turns life into a paradox. Uh, it, sorry. I guess I might think about this because it might be more about postmodernism. But what would you mm. say to someone who's just like quite happy with the fact that their life is a paradox? So I have friends who, when we have this discussion, mm. one friend who works with domestic violence victims mm. and would say humans are essentially a waste of their resources. But, I'm ha- but I think this is right, so I'm happy to do it. So she's like, I admit there's a doubt between what I believe and what I do. Mm. But, so what's to say yeah. that there has to be integration? Well, I'm, I'm putting forward the thesis that, that people do actually long for integration, that there is something uncomfortable about disintegration and being pulled in different directions. Um, you may say or I've got to live with it because there's no better alternative. This is the uncomfortable truth you've got to learn to live with. But you're not saying, yeah, I'm really glad that I'm living out this worldview consistently. (laughs) Um, And that very sense of dissatisfaction at least ought to motivate one to pay some interest when someone comes along and says, I've got an alternative that I think is integrative, that doesn't do this to you. Why don't you think about that? Um, <laughs> you should at least seriously can, can pay some attention to it because of that very fact. Briefly in the time that we have, um, the postmodern mirror asks the question, who's the fairest of them all? Ends up, it ends up saying something like, although words only mean whatever they mean to you, I'd suggest that if I can get my colleagues to let me get away with saying that I'm the fairest of them all, then I am the fairest of them all. After all, values are merely subjective concepts programmed into human animals by the blind watchmaker of evolution, which only cares about what works and which doesn't care about truth any more than it cares about goodness or beauty. Why should we care about truth? We must keep faith with Darwin and admit we know that all we can know is the subjective meanings of our own words. Um, that's made up of uh, quite a lot of quotes from both modernists, actually, are in there. Um, yeah. When it says merely sub- subjective programmed into the blind watch mm. who do they think is, where do they think they originated from? Um, from uh, mindless, purposeless matter interacting with itself over time. Yeah, but where do they think we've got the idea of values from? <laughs> Um, well, they think that they think that an idea is some sort of uh, electrochemical pattern in your brain of physical things interacting yeah. that has come about through physical causes or physical objects interacting over time. But doesn't that mean that values come about as a result of the physical? Well, the, the concepts of values, yeah. but they would like the modern, <laughs> there aren't any real such things as. Values out there that there are no more facts, but of course we as human beings have concepts about morality, and all those concepts are, are you know ideas that don't actually refer to anything. You know. 
Um, the French philosopher Jean-Francis Lyotard um, talked about postmodernism as incredulity towards meta-narratives. That means being sceptical about big stories of, of the world, like pre-modernism or modernism. Or actually, what about postmodernism? Isn't that a big description of the story of sort of a worldview that we're living in? And this is his meta-narrative. Um, nice example of postmodern architecture here, the M2 building in Tokyo. Um, this again says something about this is a deliberately postmodern building. It's just a it's a hodgepodge of of influences from all the way from classical Greece. You know, this huge classical Greek column that has absolutely no purpose. It's not doing anything; it's just being there. You know, and the concrete and the glass and the we've got it's just a it's just a mishmash. Um, the Rexner Art Center. Um, let's just split everything becomes like a fractured jigsaw puzzle um, Ravi Zacharias tells this wonderful story about visiting America he says postmodernism tells us that there's no such thing as truth no such thing as meaning, no such thing as certainty etc. I remember lecturing at Ohio State University and I was minutes away from beginning my lecture and my host was driving me past a new building called the Rexner Centre for the Performing Arts and he said oh this is America's first postmodern building I was startled for a moment, and I said, what's a postmodern building? And he said, well, the architect said that he designed this building with no design in mind. When the architect was asked why, he said, well, if life itself is capricious, why should our buildings have any design or any meaning? So he has pillars that have no purpose. He has stairways that go nowhere. He has a senseless building built, and somebody has paid for it. <laughs> I said, so his argument was that if life has no purpose and design, why should the building have any design? He said, that's correct. And I said, did you do the same thing with the foundation? And all of a sudden there was silence. You see, you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we'd like, but we dare not fool with the foundation because if it will call our bluff in a hurry. <laughs> it's a really nice illustration about postmodernism. Um, now, we, uh, I said we'd come back to this. We had a comment right towards the beginning. And Bill Craig argues that the idea we live in a postmodern culture is actually a myth. He says it's an impossibility, it would be unlivable, and people aren't relativistic when it comes to matters of science and engineering and technology and keeping faith with Darwinism and so on. They're relativistic in matters of religion and ethics about values, it's the fact value divide from modernism that's not postmodernism, he says that's modernism it's just old line verificationism we live in a culture that remains deeply modernistic and I think he has a point the idea that everyone is relativistic about everything is wrong, but you can with J.P. Morland, another Christian philosopher distinguish a number of different sort of levels of postmodernism from what you might call sort of shallow Postmodernism, which is basically the same thing as modernism, and just it accepts this fact-value divide. So, so you know, there are facts that we know by science, and there's everything else, and that's just subjective, private talk. Value-denying, uh, scientific verification-type modernism. But below that, there's a, there's a deeper form of postmodernism, which I don't think you can consistently live or express but people do express it. There are people who claim 
these things. There's knowledge denying postmodernism that says we can't know anything. It's not just that we don't know anything outside of science. Science gives us the only access to truth. There were postmodernists who say nothing gives us access to truth. We don't know anything. And there's uh, you know, truth-denying postmodernism. It's one thing to say you can't know any truth about reality. It's another thing to say there isn't any truth to be known anyway. And it's a deeper thing to say, well, there is no reality. There is no reality. There is no spoon. Matrix. Uh, Professor Douglas Grutas puts it this way. He says, postmodernism is often presented as a radical departure from modernism. And it's, it's often only it comes about in reaction to modernism. But it's easy to miss the insight that postmodernism is, in many ways, modernism gone to seed, carried to its logical conclusion and inevitable demise. I mentioned Nietzsche a couple of times. Nietzsche argued back in the 19th century that nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusion of our great values and ideals. Back in the, you know, the modernist 19th century. The greatest recent event that God is dead, no longer believable in by the man on the clap of omnibus, as it were, that the belief in the Christian God has become unbelievable, is already beginning to cast its first shadows over Europe, he said. For the few at least whose eyes, the suspicion in whose eyes is strong and subtle enough for this spectacle, some sun seems to have set and some ancient and profound trust has been turned to doubt. If you want a, a one-sentence summary of the postmodern spirituality and culture and worldview, trust has been turned to doubt. I think nails it. How much must collapse now that this faith has been undermined because it was built on this faith? For example, the whole of our European morality, so the fat-value divide. So once you get rid of God, you can't consistently hold on to objective morality or the, the Christian tradition of morality. Indeed, Nietzsche said, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. And he criticised, particularly at that time, British um, philosophers who wanted to hold on to a belief in objective morals uh, along sort of Christian lines of morals as well, um, the sort of humanist tradition, whilst rejecting God. And he said, no, God's the foundation that that stuff's built on. You've got to be, go further than that. If you're going to chuck God out, have the courage of your convictions. We're going to have to replace good and evil with strong and weak and, and so on. And uh, you know what? They, you know, the Nazis capitalised on certain elements of, of Nietzsche's philosophy. I mean, he fell out with um, Wagner, uh, over Wagner's anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism. So, uh, but um, his sister uh, certainly influenced Hitler through the relationship and giving um, Nietzsche's works to Hitler and, and so on. So there was a sort of line of connection there. Even even to the point of not just denying values, now, but seeing Nietzsche denying truth. He asked this crucial, very interesting question. He said, why should you pay attention to truth? 
See, that's a value question about truth. Why should you pay attention to truth? He says, what is the truth? What is truth? A movable host of metaphors. We're just caught up in our own language. Truths are illusions which we have forgotten are illusion. They're metaphors that have become worn out. We don't, our language doesn't really give us access to truth about reality. And why care about that anyway? So we, we talked earlier about R- Rosenberg saying, you know, there's no good, there's no bad, there's no purpose, there's no blah, blah, blah. But he seems to be the concern for truth. Science gives us the truth about reality. But if there's no meaning and purpose and objective value, why should you pay attention? Why not say, hey, this modernist worldview makes me really depressed. Um, The drugs just don't hack it anymore. I know. um, I'll get myself brainwashed so that I, I believe in the objective meaningfulness and purposefulness of my life. It won't be true, but hey, once I'm brainwashed, I won't know that and I'll be happy. Now, why shouldn't I, you know, what's, would anything be, be wrong about that in a given modernism that says, well, nothing's, there is no difference between right and wrong, says Weisenberg. So, yeah, his whole, like, truth, but why? How can you hold up the value of truth, keep hold of truth? Nietzsche said, I fear that we will never get rid of ourselves, never rid ourselves of God so long as we still believe in grammar. <laughs> Interesting comment. Uh, we'll never get r- rid ourselves of God as long as we still believe in, in grammar. Uh, nowadays, atheist Richard Rorty, famous postmodern philosopher, says the idea that one species of organism is, unlike all the others, orientated not just towards its own increased propensity, that is survival, but towards truth, with a capital T, is as un-Darwinian as the idea that every human being has an inbuilt moral compass. But you see, here's a, here's a, the postmodern philosopher is going from the very modernist neo-Darwinian science tells us the truth about ourselves and the whole truth about ourselves idea, and it's that commitment to that very modernistic idea that is propelling him towards postmodern trust has turned to doubt about truth. Well, why, tr- why trust my brain to tell me truth about reality if it is the product of a mindless, purposeless system that doesn't care about truth, doesn't care about anything, that only in inverted commas cares about what works? The atheist uh, John Gray, uh, in his book Straw, Straw Dogs, uh, says to think of science as the search for truth is to renew a mystical faith that truth rules the world that truth is divine modern humanism is the faith that through science humankind can know the truth and be set free and, and Gray provocatively describes humanism as a sort of um, debased form of Christianity <laughs> Uh, with all of the uh, religious uh, constraints taken away from the idealism, the utopianism of Christianity. But it says, but we can do it in this world here and now. We don't have to wait for God's intervention in, in heaven and so on. Follow us. We will give you heaven on earth now through science and technology and social progress and the communist revolution, whatever. We might have to kill a few million people to get there, but the ends justify the means. So he is an anti-humanist atheist, John Gray. He says, if, if, if Darwin's theory of natural selection is true, this is impossible. The idea that, 
that through science humankind can know the truth and be set free. The human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. To think otherwise is to resurrect the pre-Darwinian era that humans are different from all other animals. A rigorously naturalistic account of the human mind entails a much more sceptical view of human knowledge than is commonly acknowledged. Or the atheist Sam Harris, although he's a neo-atheist, says our logical, mathematical and physical intuitions have not been designed by natural selection to track the truth. The philosopher of mind, Patricia Churchton, this is a very famous statement by her. She says, the principal chore of nervous systems, bodies, is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth definitely takes the hindmost, she says. But if truth takes the hindmost on a naturalistic, modernist understanding of human beings, how can naturalists be confident about the truth of naturalism? You're kind of soaring off the branch that you're sitting on (laughs) to say something like that. Uh, In the very provocative book Mind and Cosmos by the American atheist philosopher of mind, Thomas Nagel. And this is very, it's a thin book, quite readable, um, I think, and very provocative. Um, although it's by an atheist, famous philosopher from the States, it has a very interesting subtitle. The subtitle of this book, Mind and Cosmos, is Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. And he says in Mind and Cosmos, evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our capacities, particularly our thinking capacities, that undermines their reliability, and in doing so, undermines itself. So the more consistently you follow the purely scientific description of humanity, the less certain you can be of it argues this atheist philosopher. Um, Rosenberg has a fascinating section in his book about philosophy of mind and so on, and he argues that no chunk of matter just by itself can be about, have this property of being about or of another bit of matter. He says that we have thoughts that are about things and thinking about the bottle of water on the table. Think about it. He says the brain can't have thoughts about Paris or about anything else for that matter because it's just a chunk of matter and matter doesn't have... It can be caused by... (laughs) It can't be about anything. One clump of matter, he says, can't be about another clump of matter. Um, But if purely physical realities can't have thoughts about anything, then they can't have true thoughts about anything, including true thoughts about what we think about things. It would, what a knotty kind of mess of a hole you start digging yourself into here. Bertrand Russell, back in the 20th century, put it this way. Uh, a sceptical philosopher from Oxford. He said, if we imagine a world of mere matter, there would be no room for falsehood in such a world. And although it would contain what may be called facts, it wouldn't contain any truths. A world of mere matter, since it would contain no beliefs or statements, would also contain no truth or falsehood. 
a world of matter would just contain matter. Matter is not about matter. It just is matter. How do you get about from is any more than you can get the, the moral ought from a just is. Uh, Howard Taylor puts it this way. He says, postmodernism uses reason to show that reason itself is invalid if you accept the modernist descriptions. But any system which is arrived at by reason and then uses reason to invalidate reason must be self-refuting. Nevertheless, postmodernism is right in saying that there is no room for reason in the modernist stroke atheist worldviews. And it's fascinating to see that that's something being argued by a number of atheist thinkers. Right. So, to summarise this kind of through argument, we start with a, a pre-modern Christian worldview, puts God at the centre, and because we've got God at the foundation, we, we have... Um, objective goodness and beauty and truth and science and objective purpose and meaning and the importance of wisdom and, and reason and so on and those all seem to sort of comfortably and coherently fit together and then modernism comes along and draws a different circle and that circle tries to include a lot of things that were in our pre-modern circle but it excludes God God's pushed out we put say science in the middle, big on science and a naturalistic worldview. Um, and that immediately entails this sort of fact value distinction, um, the axiological, the value denying postmodernism, shallow postmodernism, if you like, it's the same as, as modernism. And then, as Nagel and so on were arguing there, the pre modern reaction to modernism, to naturalism, to some of the failed utopian ideals of, of modernist society and so on, actually recognises that that shallow postmodernism is not consistent enough with the foundations, with the, with the lack of God in the worldview. And the more consistently, the more seriously you take that rejection of God, the further you're pushed to denying not just objectivity of value but our access to to truth to reality to knowledge the, the further actually you're pushed into a sort of Nietzschean nihilism uh, if you're consistent with it these worldviews people inhabit them and, and these cultures are vying with one another today and, and as an extension of, of the stuff we looked at last time about spirituality, head, heart, hands, and thinking in, then in terms of we want to be, people do want to be consistent and integrative about that rather than being pulled apart. And actually, once you get rid of, of God, is it possible to do that? Actually, there are plenty of non-Christian thinkers who would argue, actually, no, the more... The more consistent with that is, you know, the Rosenbergs, you've got to get rid of the soul, so you've got to get rid of free will. That's really not really consistent. You've got to get rid of objective values. You've got to get rid of meaning. You've got to get rid of purpose. Oh, but I like science and truth. And actually, I, I quite like integrity. And I value things. 
and and then you know other people are going to come along and, and say, well, hang on a minute, if, if that's your understanding of what you are as a person, how do you, how do you got any confidence you've got this access to the way that we evolved? Or to truth? Or why should we value truth? Or doesn't, think, doesn't everything b- begin falling apart once you've got rid of, of the foundation? Um, and they'll say, you know, come, be, come and be more consistent. Come and be more consistent. I agree with you about this integrity thing. Come and be more consistent and give up on everything. Hang on, what? But I'm not going to give up on my integrity. Why? Um, isn't there this intuition of there's something more than this life we're living, something more? Without a soul, we're nothing more than blood and bones. You know. <laughs> uh, and these, these spiritualities, these worldviews, you know, people are striving to achieve things, to artistically express things, to organise culture um, out of these worldviews, uh, in reaction against one or other of these worldviews, etc. So much that we've been thinking a bit about the different worldviews in the last few weeks, but it's been so helpful to have you um, sort of show us a little bit more explicitly what they mean in a cultural mm. sense and what they look like at an emotional level as well as mm. just an intellectual level. I think that's been, been really valuable. Um, so I want to just uh, pray as we finish. Mm. Thanks, Jess. God, um, thank you so much for Peter and thank you for um, the wisdom and the knowledge that you have um, gifted him with and thank you for the, the work that he's doing um, and sharing his Christian worldview with um, people interested in philosophy um, and all these intellectual bodies. Um, thank you for all that we've learned this morning and it'll God, just help us to know how to apply that to, to our lives. Um, and to the different spheres that we are working in. Amen. Amen. Amen.